Welcome to Life Skills for Kids, Superstar Practical Strategies, your go-to podcast for surviving and thriving with your children. I'm your host, Deb Hopper, and as a parent and an occupational therapist, I understand the reality of getting through each day with the kids. Join me as we delve into tips, tricks, and strategies that you can use today. Hi, and welcome to the Life Skills for Kids podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Andrew Pennington from Sydney joining us today. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much, Deb. It's great to have you here and it's great to have um, a medical practitioner's point of view on, you know, kids' anxiety um, for our conversation today. So um, tell me, how often would you see children, um, I guess, and or families who come through your clinic who uh, are struggling with uh, anxiety? It's very common, Deb. Uh, I would probably be seeing um, a, a few families a week, no, no question. Um, sometimes every day. Yeah. Wow. And at what what ages are you finding that you can that the anxiety is starting to surface these days? It can be very young, and sometimes if you just if you if you really talk to the parents about what's been going on for that child, you'll identify features from a very young age, and it can be in between one and two years of age. But I think anxiety uh, tends to more commonly pop its head up in a, at a few times, and as in at a few age groups. I tend to see between about six and eight. There can be a a sort of arisal of anxiety uh, perhaps in the early primary school years and then sometimes you'll also see in the early high school years around puberty um, uh, that may also be a, a distribution of where you might see an increase in anxiety in, in uh, adolescence. Yes, and I would agree with, you know, the six to eight-year-olds. Often, you know, kids can fly under the radar in those preschool years and once they hit primary school, um, there's increased pressures, there's more, you know, um, expectation that they, you know, they sit and they listen and they concentrate um, and there's many reasons why they might struggle with that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, I've just, um, I was just reflecting before we hopped on here that there's been increased media um awareness of anxiety this year and I was just thinking um, I was just watching the news the project um, last night and then I think it was last week where they had two different stories on you know kids who you know who are more anxious and how perhaps as parents be protecting them too much and they're not developing that um, resilience that they need uh, and then last night they were talking about you know parents who are anxious um, so it's definitely something that seems to be on the increase, do you think? Uh, uh, I think it probably is slightly. Uh, I remember looking at the statistics on this, at least the official statistics, uh, a little while ago, um, and it's it's quite significant. You know, you, I, I think the most recent stats from Australia are in the last five years, and, and the rates are about 7% of, of uh, children have an anxiety disorder. Um, it's quite... Um, it's quite significant. Uh, whether or not it's increasing, I, I suspect it is. I mean, but it is a bit hard to tell because obviously, you you know, I see a, a bias selection of people who are pre-selected to see me. Um, but, but I think there's a possibility that it is. And there may be some uh, many contributors towards that. 
I think uh, technology over the last uh, 50 years has rapidly expanded and and my, I mean, we can go into more detail about what may be some causal factors potentially, um, but I think uh, technology is a contributor because we are at a stage in our lives where we've never been able to do so many things in such a short period of time. And I do wonder if our brains get overloaded to some level because uh, there's constant demand on us as adults but also on children um, uh, to do more, uh, to uh, have more activities. And like you say, there may be some parenting factors as well that, that I'm sure are not always deliberate but around certain parenting strategies that may contribute towards childhood anxiety as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's lots of other factors, nutritional factors, physical activity factors, socialization factors, uh, toxic environment factors, um, uh, screen time factors, amount of sleep that people are getting, um, uh, lots of these things. And obviously genetics do play a role. Uh, And, of course, uh, when I do... Uh, see a family, uh, and I'm obviously usually talking to the parent um, along with the child. Uh, it's not uncommon that you can find uh, family histories of anxiety uh, when you're talking about a child that's in front of you who's exhibiting anxiety symptoms. Uh, and often the parents will be able to say, "Look, you know, my I've always had anxiety. My mother had anxiety. You know, my grandmother had anxiety." And you can see it sort of through the through the families or obviously it can be uh, on the male side as well too. Mm. So do you think it's um, passed down genetically or do you think it's more of um, the environment, you know, and the parents' reactions? Uh, It's definitely a combination. Uh, and, And I think genetics, we're learning more and more, sets the scene but it doesn't, Uh, or it sets the stage, but it doesn't play out the play. The environment plays out the play. Uh, And so uh, you'll have genetic predisposition in in a lot of these uh, children towards anxiety or depression or whatever it might be. Uh, But whether one develops that is obviously due to environmental factors. And and those factors we've we've begun to discuss. But uh, I have a particular interest in... Uh, holistically looking at health and how uh, nutrition, lifestyle, um, uh, all of that, how that interplays with uh, the genetic predisposition towards um, the expression of symptoms in a child or adult, uh, whatever that may be. And in this situation, obviously, we're talking about anxiety and mental health problems. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, your clinic, where it is, um, and how uh, your clinical practice may be a little different to the traditional GP. Sure. Uh, So my clinic's called Sanctuary Lifestyle Clinic. Uh, I set the clinic up nearly three years ago. Uh, It's in Waitara on the north side of Sydney. Uh, And my desire when I set this clinic up was to uh, promote holistic lifestyle medicine. And, and the reason for this is because I was becoming dissatisfied with the traditional short consultation model in general practice. Uh, I've been part of that 
plenty of times and it's no disrespect to those GPs who are in those models because it's largely driven by the way that Medicare remunerates um, and that uh, drives, I guess, uh, what patients expect then. Um, but I, I found that it was very difficult to adequately address complex problems with short consultations. It's, you know, you can chip away definitely and there's lots of GPs who are trying to obviously help uh, by repeated follow-up consultations with patients um, and, of course, you know, some are, are better than others. Um, but there's a con there, there really is a, a um, I guess, a clash between good clinical care and the business model of what's going to constitute a successful general practice financially. Uh, and if you want to do, uh, um, if you want to have costs low for the patient, uh, you have to, i.e., let's say you might be a bulk billing clinic, you really have to see lots of patients quickly in order to do that because that's the way that the Medicare models are funded. Now, I decided that that was not the way I wanted to particularly practice medicine. So I wanted to set up a clinic that was would spend longer with patients. So I have an, generally speaking, I have an hour with my patient first time. Uh, unfortunately, I, I can't bulk bill that because it just isn't remunerated well enough. My, my business would fail if I did so. So um, and, and I do sometimes have half an hour first consults as well if the problems are, are, are more simple. Uh, but... The model was really to, to look at things more holistically, to do the things that doctors are trained to do. And, and most GPs are trained to take thorough histories. Uh, it's just that when they're squeezed to do short consults, they have to leave things out. Um, but for me, it was to go back to taking a full history, looking at the family history that we've discussed, looking at the social factors, looking at the uh, lifestyle factors. So, you know, when I talk to patients very often, I'll be asking them about their lifestyle. I'll be talking about, um, how much exercise they're doing and going into detail about that. I'll be asking them about their diet and, and asking them to give me a detailed history of, of what they eat. Uh, I'll be going into how much they sleep, how much water do they drink, what kind of stressors are in their life at present, um, how much social interaction do they have, what do they find they've got a purpose in life, are they connected um, with social groups or faith-based groups or um, spiritual connections. There's lots of things that we can go into that affect health um, that I think uh, when I've set the clinic up the way I have, it's it's more conducive to be able to do that. Um, so that that's, that's the reason that I set Sanctuary Lifestyle Clinic up as it is. Um, it's taken time to build and, and it is, certainly is building in practice. We uh, are constantly looking for uh, new, new um, practitioners, allied health practitioners, other doctors potentially. Uh, and then obviously we want to service our community. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a bit about Sanctuary Lifestyle Clinic. Uh, and maybe if I can just talk a little bit about how did I come into why I practice differently. Uh, so that was part of the philosophy that I just mentioned, trying to do more holistic care. But you also need to probably expand your own education as a doctor. And I was fortunate about six or seven years ago to be introduced to um, – nutritional psychiatry uh, and it was through an organization called biobalance uh, and i was quite skeptical uh, and i was like uh, okay why why would i do that but i had a couple of colleagues who encouraged me to go and so i learned in that uh conference around 
different nutritional imbalances and how they affected neurotransmission in your brain. And that really set me off on a pathway towards understanding more complementary medicine strategies and where there's evidence for these, and there is. Uh, so sometimes, you know, people who do complementary medicine are accused of being non-evidence-based, uh, and that can be true, but but uh, a lot of the integrative practitioners that I work are very evidence-based. It's just the evidence may not be quite as strong as, say, a pharmaceutical who's done, you know, 10 different randomized trials, uh, and then there can be a collation of data on that. So you may be dealing with less strong evidence, but the evidence often is there. Uh, and this helped me to then work with patients to use nutritional strategies, both diet and nutritional supplementation, and then obviously other things like focusing on exercise stress reduction, using allied health practitioners who can assist with some things, for example, occupational therapists, uh, and, uh, and others who can actually work with children and adults to give a holistic team approach to assist that patient um, in their needs. And it's almost like... You know, I can't do it all for them, uh, and I wouldn't expect to. But I can take it. I can. I tell my patients it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, I can put some big pieces of your puzzle together for you, but you're going to need other people to put some other pieces of the puzzle together before you can see something beautiful. Um, and that's uh, that's how I, I guess I view it with my patients. And it's been enormously rewarding, uh, Deb, to uh, actually start to improve children and adults mental health uh, without resorting in most cases not all uh, to pharmaceutical medications uh, and I'm certainly not opposed to the use of a ph pharmaceutical medication if it's required or if it's necessary but in many cases I have not needed to do that and in fact found the treatment to be superior largely due to the lack of side effects that nutritional psychiatry therapies have compared with pharmaceutical uh, psychiatry therapies. Fantastic. I am really interested to learn more about the nutritional part um, because so many of the kids that I work with um, are on the spectrum. They're fussy eaters um, yes. and there are evidence-based programs like the, we use the SOS um, sequential oral sensory fussy eating, prog eating program here, um, which is great. Um, but I'm just wondering, how do we work with kids who are anxious about food and who have really restricted diets of, you know, the white stuff, you know, hot chips, chicken nuggets, white bread? <laughs> um, are there any nutritional, um, obviously they're not getting all the nutrients they need, but are there deficits that are linked into um, that kind of difficulty? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So I, I, <clears throat> this is a tricky one, obviously, and, and, and I'll basically work with a parent according to their capacity. So I'll give you one example. So we can often uh, improve someone's mental health through improving their diet, and, and that would be an ideal strategy. There's no need to put supplemental pills into someone, uh, and uh, if we can do that, then it may be that the, if the parent feels they've got enough strength to do so, then I will work with them with some specific strategies. And in general, what we need as for healthy children and adults is lots of vegetables, lots of fibre, uh, 
some good quality fats, not heaps, but some, and good quality protein. And I tend to advise parents predominantly to source that from plant foods because plant foods tend to, over the long term, be associated with improved disease outcomes and longevity. So if we're talking about protein, I ask parents wherever possible to source their protein from vegetables, seeds, nuts, legumes, uh, grains that are proteinous, that are whole grain. Uh, And that often helps. Now, there may be, as you rightly say, a child who's no way are going to take any of that stuff in. And, And that's tricky. So now, and sometimes it's a chicken or egg thing. Is it because they had a bad diet that they ended up worse in that position or is it because there was some problem that led them to have a bad diet? And sometimes you have to work with the philosophy that, well, maybe you actually have to supplement them with some nutrients to correct that behavior so that then they can improve their diet. And and that's another approach that I will take. And often I do find myself taking that approach largely because poor old parents are, are very um, sick of fighting their children to eat things that they know they should eat that they're not. Um, so the attractiveness of taking a, a supplement in a powder or capsule is is quite high. And, and not infrequently, I find that I can. And one of the examples here of a very important nutrient is zinc. So zinc is associated with many bodily functions, but it improves immunity, uh, it improves mental health, it improves gastric acid secretions, and it improves taste. So not infrequently, children who are fussy eaters are low in zinc because they, uh, and that causes them to have a, a poor taste sensation. So food to them is often quite bland and it's not particularly exciting. So you'll, you'll not infrequently find someone who is low in zinc and it may not be a, a blood deficiency. It could be just a low side of normal. But uh, it, and in, comes, in some cases, I do, I do a lot of testing with zinc. Sometimes I do find people are frankly deficient in it. Uh, but they may find that they... Uh, they are looking. They look for strong flavored foods because it stimulates their taste more. So they may be looking for spicy or very salty or very sweet foods uh, to to give them a sensation of actually something in their palate. Now, as an OT, I'm sure you're very well aware that there can be sensory issues with these children as well in terms of textures of foods, and 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 that can be quite a problem. And interestingly, I think there is some nutritional uh, or psychological perceptions of the sensory issues that affect how that child deals with the textures. And zinc is one of the nutrients that's important for a child to be able to have a balanced uh, psychological sensation of textures, shall I say, if that makes sense. Um, So it's very hard to to harm uh, someone with zinc. So it's a nutrient that I will commonly use with people, but I often, as I say, test them through a blood test to try and find out if they have uh, deficiency or suboptimal levels of zinc. Yeah. Uh, but that that's one of many nutrients that are important, but I think it's probably in my top sort of three or four that uh, is a beneficial nutrient for anxiety and mental health as well. Yeah. Now, one of the difficulties, I think, just flowing on slightly from here is you, you might ask, well, is there any evidence of this? And the answer is there is some evidence in the literature. There is no doubt that there are associations in the medical literature with anxiety, depression, and low zinc levels in the blood, but it hasn't easily been proven that that causes that. 
So it's, it's quite a lot harder to prove a causal relationship than an association. Um, but certainly in my anecdotal experience, and I probably would have treated uh, probably 800 to 1,000 adults and children with uh, uh, mental health problems, and it is, I would say, 80-plus percent of them are low or, or are either frankly deficient or borderline deficient in zinc. Um, so, so that's one of the crucial nutrients. But there are others, and I know if you want to go into that, I'm more than happy to with you. Yeah, sure. Happy for you to, to keep going. Okay. Well, um, so uh, if we stick a little bit with some of the medical literature here, um, because I think it is important to try and be as evidence-based as possible, um, there is reasonable evidence for things like omega-3, Mm -hmm. uh, and omega-3 people tend to have associated with uh, oily fish, uh, and obviously you can get omega-3 in that, that scenario. Uh, there are other places you can get omega-3, such as certain seeds and nuts um, and some grains like quinoa um, and also some algal sources, which is often where the fish has got it in the first place by eating an algae or a seaweed that contains omega-3. And, and, of course, some plants have omega-3 too. Um, but there is a general acknowledgement in Western diets that we have relatively too much omega-6 products and relatively little omega-3 products. And it is being borne out, I would say, with moderate evidence in the medical literature that omega-3 supplementation is beneficial in things like um anxiety, depression, ADHD, and possibly things like bipolar disorder. So uh, that would be a, a supplement that in general is beneficial. Uh, another uh, supplement that is being looked at are different B vitamins, and there is, again, some mild to moderate evidence in the medical literature that these vitamins can be, assist, uh, can be beneficial in, in uh, mental health. So folic acid or, or folate, um, and in particular, methylated folate, which is an active version of folate, tends to be a uh, beneficial nutrient, but not for everyone. Some people don't respond well for that. Mind you, autistic children respond very well generally to folate, um, but again, not everybody. Vitamin B12 can be beneficial for some, um, and then there can be um, uh, some other supplements like magnesium, which can also be quite helpful. That has a couple of randomized controlled trials in anxiety and depression, both showing that it's better than placebo. Uh, and, um, uh, and then there's some other supplements like vitamin D, S-adenosylmethionine, uh, uh, St. John's wort. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a few out there. There's, I'm just listing some off the top of my head, but there's more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, in, my, in my experience... What, what I have learned is that certain genetic predispositions respond better to one nutrient over another, and it depends a little bit on how that, that brain system has been uh, the genetic inheritance of certain enzyme systems as to how nutrients are handled and how those nutrients are then affect, uh, often how they affect DNA expression so there's a cycle in your body called the methylation cycle. And this cycle, uh, depending on how fast or slow that innately goes in your body, it will affect 
your body's DNA methylation. And DNA methylation is one of the ways we change gene expression. So it's it's very, very interesting. We're, uh, some of your listeners may be aware that, um, and we alluded to this a bit earlier, that your genes are not your destiny. They are, they kind of, it's, I guess one of the analogies that's been thrown around is the genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. And, and DNA methylation is one of the mechanics of how we actually pull the gun. Um, so we can change the gene expression by placing methyl groups on our DNA, and that may change whether we express proteins in our nerves that reuptake our neurotransmitter systems, uh, or reuptake our neurotransmitters, I should say. Uh, and that's particularly important because traditional psychiatry has understood this for a while, that uh, when nerves communicate together, they use neurotransmitters, and these are little chemicals that kind of jump between the nerves and transmit the signals. Um, so you, your listeners may be familiar with some of them, such as serotonin, noradrenaline, dopamine, uh, GABA. These are some of the common neurotransmitters, and they each have a different association. So serotonin is generally regarded as a happy neurotransmitter. It keeps mood in check. Dopamine is regarded as a pleasure neurotransmitter and a concentration neurotransmitter. So uh, children with ADHD are generally uh, regarded as having a low dopamine sort of state. And but this is also true in addictive behaviors. Um, and then anxiety can also be associated with low GABA, which is a calming neurotransmitter. So all of these systems generally in your brain, they need to be in balance. Uh, and it's very complicated how they how they work. And I can't in any way say to you that I'm expert on understanding all of that. But I know enough now to know that nutrition has a profound impact on how they are either built or how they are reuptake taken in the, in the communication between nerves. And this is the theoretical model of how mood and behavioral change is affected by both the genetics and the environment such as nutrition um, in, when it comes to uh, mental health. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was privileged recently to visit your clinic in Waitara and I just loved your, um, your waiting room and you had the most beautiful posters in the waiting room which link in with, I guess, your philosophy. Can you talk through um, the New Start acronym? Of course. Uh, so, yes, New, New Start is an acronym which I use to basically describe how I practice. Uh, it's not a new acronym. It's been around for a number of years, um, originally created by the Weimar Institute in uh, the United States. Um, but it stands for nutrition, is the first pillar of health. Uh, exercise is the E part of, um, of the new start. Uh, w for water. Uh, our bodies do need a, a certain water intake um, every day. Um, sunshine is the uh, the next uh, key and, and many of your listeners will be aware that uh, vitamin D is uh, converted into the active state through ultraviolet light from sunshine uh, but also sunshine has mood benefits as well and sleep benefits. Um, T is an old-fashioned word for temperance and essentially it means avoiding harmful substances and being moderate with healthful substances, um, avoiding cigarettes, drugs, alcohol, etc., um, and uh, being temperate, not overdoing good things too. Sometimes we forget that. You know, you can overeat good things 
um, and you can over-exercise as well. So that's being temporary. Um, then uh, ST uh, A is for fresh air, uh, and getting out in fresh air is important. Um, R is for rest and having adequate sleep. And I think this is a really big one in today's society where people are skimping on their sleep uh, and there's you know devices which disturb blue light and melatonin production in your brain so uh, it can disturb sleep. It's, it's a huge one. But not only physical sleep, but also I think emotional rest where sometimes we just, we're constantly on the go. You know, we're in the, the mold of life and you know, particularly if you're a parent and you're running after children and you, it just seems like the jobs and stuff never end and you never get on top of it. So we need holidays. We also need time out, I think, in places like nature. And there's a number of um, good quality uh, trials that are showing the benefit of connecting with nature uh, and breathing and relaxation techniques that uh, are used, uh, mindfulness techniques that are often used to calm um, and spiritual techniques, uh, and one of those can be uh, something which I engage with regularly is a day of rest a week, and, and it's an enormously beneficial time because it's where you're forgetting your other um, activities and you're just concentrating on family and spirituality for that day. And then the last point is trust, and I think this is also an important point. Uh, the last uh, T of New Start is trust, and this is both Trusting, we, we need to have trusting relationships in our life, uh, both with family and friends. And this is why I think some of the uh, things that create distrust in our life can be harmful to our health and they can be big things like uh, breaking up with spouses where, you know, trust is broken. That, that can be a very big thing. Um, it can be uh, even to the point of obviously crimes which can happen, which break trust in family. Um, but then it can also be little things, just people being unreliable to each other and not you can't actually be able to trust somebody to, to help you with something. Uh, those things can affect how we view and can make us jaded against life and, and affect our mental health. And then I also believe the importance of having trust in a divine power. I think that's an important thing because it, it, it helps us to realize that there is something bigger than ourselves out there and we can uh, connect with that and have that trust that God will look after us. Absolutely. And um, when you're talking about trusting each other in relationships, it, um, it brought back to me a client I saw recently who, who was a runner who, you know, absconded and basically was testing the boundaries with that attachment between um, him and his parents and and how in the session I was saying, you know, I trust you, you know, come back here, you know, I trust you and you can trust me. <laughs> um, that attachment, that trust between parents and their children and children and their teachers, you know, and other adults um, is so important because sometimes for, for many reasons, you know, um, whether it's um, attachment or whether it's, you know, a history of trauma, um, they, many kids just don't have that trust. It's so important, Deb, and, and you're probably aware of the Adverse Childhood Experiences um, research on trauma in childhood, and it really is profound. It has a profound impact on the development of that child's brain if they have traumatic experiences that create distrust and stress in their childhood. 
Um, and obviously, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners may have experienced some of those things and there's uh, nothing you can do to change that past. But, but what you can do, of course, is to look at the holistic principles that we're discussing and that can often bring healing. Definitely. Um, and when you're talking about um, the new star, it, it, those acronyms are very similar to the, um, the meaning of my SMILERS acronym in my Teaching Kids and Manage Anxiety book. And, um, and thank you for being such a supporter. I know that you um, have some copies in your clinic. So thank you so much um, for that. Sure do. Yeah. Sure do. It's a great book. Thank you. Thank you. So um, if we were to summarise, um, you know, a couple of top tips for parents that are really easy and actionable, where would you say, where would you suggest to start in um, being, a, I guess, a karma family and to help your anxious child? Oh, that's a great, great idea. Okay. I think number one there, reevaluate your priorities. Look, look at what you're spending time on and if you are not giving time to your children, uh, then maybe you need to think about your priorities because children spell love, T-I-M-E. Yes. And if we give time to our children, I think it, that builds relationship and it may well be able to quell their anxieties. Um, and I would, I would go and spend time with your children in, in nature. Go and take them to the beach. Um, go and hike in a mountain, go and swim in a river stream, you know, go and kayak somewhere if you can, you know, uh, even just walking on a bushwalk somewhere. If you've got access to those things, uh, do them. Uh, it's, it ticks off a number of the boxes of exercise, social time together, trust with each other, um, fresh air, um, you know, connection, all of those things, beautiful. And then sometimes even that's not enough and I think then obviously you might need to see a professional and, and there are a number of places that you can start depending on the issues. A good lifestyle or integrative-focused general practitioner, if you can find one, uh, it would be fantastic. Um, and they may well be able to refer you to certain other allied health practitioners such as an OT, um, such as an audiologist, uh, such as a speech pathologist or a physiotherapist. Um, sometimes these people are necessary and sometimes a paediatrician or a psychologist might be uh, necessary to, to help in those scenarios. Um, and, and occasionally you might need to involve even a psychiatrist if the, if the problem is severe enough. But uh, those, are, those are some strategies obviously you need to be aware of and the, the, your GP is usually the first protocol to be able to help you navigate that, that sphere. Um, but Aside from that, time with your kids, natural environment, exercise, lots of exercise generally is very good for anxiety and eating lots of fruits and vegetables. If I can leave that with people and it's very hard to exhaust them, very hard. Uh, so I tend to try and get kids and adults to eat seven to nine serves of fruits and vegetables a day and it's not that hard if you just uh, get used to doing it but if you're not used to doing it, well, um, maybe try it. Get started. Start with a couple and then keep adding yeah. every week. <laughs> Adam, that's exactly right. Find things you like. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So just one last time, where can people connect with you, Andrew? Sure. So my clinic is Sanctuary Lifestyle Clinic. It's in Waitara on the north shore of Sydney. Um, the website is www.sanctuaryclinic.com.au. I also have a Facebook page if people just want to search in Facebook Sanctuary Lifestyle Clinic and they can like it or follow it. 
uh, and I do have a YouTube channel which you can do uh, similarly to like or follow. Uh, and uh, there's not a heap of content on there at the moment, but I'll add some with time. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your, your valuable time. I know you're a very busy person. <laughs> thank you for prioritising us. <laughs> it's been a privilege, Devon. Thank you for interviewing me and thank you for all that you're doing with, at Life Skills for Kids. No worries. Well, that was another episode of Life Skills for Kids podcast. And um, please leave a review and I will put the uh, contact details for Andrew on the show notes online. See you next time. Thank you for joining me on the Live Skills for Kids podcast, providing you with superstar parenting tips and empowering you to be the rock in your child's life. Do you have an anxious child and feel overwhelmed and unsure how to help them? Check out my book, Teaching Kids to Manage Anxiety, Superstar Practical Strategies to help your anxious child move from fear and worry to confidence and peace. See you next time.